uh, because we're in part two. And what we're doing is we're doing an expositional study of Matthew 6, started that last night, Matthew 24, going through that today, and then using that as an introduction to the book of Revelation, which is God's gift to us of how it all ends. In fact, we were discussing it this morning, my wonderful wife, Bonnie, who's sitting right there uh, on the corner. She's very distracting to me. Uh, She distracted me 38 years ago and has never stopped. And... uh, when I'm in the classroom, I have to be very careful because, you know, when I'm teaching, because I will pay attention to her and the students. It's interesting, uh, around the world in the Bible institutes, a lot of first-generation Christians have never seen married people in love. Do you realize that? I mean, in America, since we're all mostly Americans here today, Think of a pickup truck in the south, you know? There's a pickup truck, you pull up behind it, you see this one guy with his arm out the window, you know, and maybe, you know, a little uh, something, a piece of uh, uh, weed or something in his mouth, and on the other side is the wife with her arm out the window, you know, and that's marriage in America. Now, if you come up behind the same pickup truck and you see one head kind of halfway behind the steering wheel and the other head is also behind the steering wheel, and you can't see light between them, you know that they're not married, they're what? They're dating. (laughs) But when you see them, they're what? Married. And there's maybe a car seat between them, right? Uh, But that's how marriage is. Most people think that you only have fun, and it's exciting and wonderful, and Everything that that Solomon talked about, you know, you're intoxicated with one another while you're dating, and then you get married. But you know what? We are supposed to project to the world what God said, that we love our wives like Christ loves the church, and our wife is responsively in adoration looking at us like the church looks at Christ. Whoa. Whoa. You know, that's something to think about because before a watching world, one of the most powerful things we have if you're married is living that life that God designed marriage to be. I'm not doing marriage, and I'm going to get right off that. So, right. It's okay. okay. Tell me when this is over because I don't know. Well, it typically ends around 10.30. Good. Oh, that's great. Okay. Okay. And what I'm going to also do is, I'm going to actually treat you, I thought about this, I thought, why don't you just treat them like the students? I mean, Bonnie and I, over the last five years, have taught over 2,000 students that are in Bible school, that are training, I call them the next generation. And so I'm going to treat you like you're another group of those students. So I'll talk real fast, and I'm going to present a lot of material But basically, I'm going to follow just what I do when I'm in the classroom. So this morning, we're looking at God's map of how it all ends. And basically, last night I introduced it, and it's the Lord's Prayer, what you all know. In fact, last night we all quoted my text, and we prayed the Lord's Prayer, emphasizing that one part that Jesus said we're supposed to always have as a component when we address him. Because remember, it says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, After this manner pray ye. Now, what the Lord was saying, it actually is in the imperative mode. He said, I want not those words to be mindlessly recited like two billion people do in in liturgical services around the world. They can say it 
I mean, they can say it and be doing their grocery list because they've done it since they were almost born. I don't mean the mindless recitation. I mean actually thinking about each of those elements. And we looked at all of them last night. And one of them is this idea of thy kingdom coming. I am supposed to be geared up every day to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your kingdom coming. And I know what you called me to do. Do you remember on the Mount of Ascension? This is what Bonnie and I were talking about this morning before we came over here. After the resurrection, after Jesus had taught Matthew 24, after they had seen the power of Christ in his deity poured out, they said, is the kingdom coming now? See, they caught thy kingdom come. They said, is it time for the kingdom? Are you taken over? And he said, it's not for you to know the day or the hour. Only my father knows that. You shall be my what? Ah, some of you didn't quite catch that, so let me, I caught you off guard. Jesus said, it's not time for you to know when the kingdom's coming. What you're supposed to be doing right now, the entire time that you're left on earth until I take you home, is you shall be my what? Wow. So I don't even need to teach this morning. You already know it. We're supposed to get up this morning and think, Lord, who are you going to set a divine appointment with me today? You know, it's so easy. We get these routines that we know almost everybody we're going to encounter during the day. And so we don't even think about divine appointments who we're going to share the gospel with. But yet that's the only reason he left us here, to be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be amazed at the divine appointments, like I said last night, that, that Peruvian barber that said, as a Roman Catholic moving to America from Peru, she said, I stopped and I looked up and I said, God, I want to come back to you. I feel so far from you. And she went to work on Saturday and got me in her chair. And I said, do you? She said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm going to teach a group of people about how it all ends. She said, how, what all ends? She said, you mean the war in Ukraine? I said, mm-hmm. She said, could you tell me what you're going to tell them? I said, yeah. That's why she got my hair all off, because she wouldn't stop asking questions until I shared the gospel with her. See, that's why we're here, okay? So we, I introduced it last night. Now I'm going to show you the outline. Jesus actually outlined the end of the world in Matthew 24 remarkably. In fact, the apostle John, who heard the outline, followed the outline when he wrote the book of Revelation. That's what we're going to spend the rest of the week on, and then we're going to see how he illustrates it in the book of Revelation. But this is what I teach the kids. In fact, uh, uh, I... These are the books that I teach. I wrote them down. Psalms, Proverbs, Minor Prophets, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Isaiah, Revelation, Mark, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Hebrews, Leviticus. And whenever I teach, and 2nd Peter and Jude, whenever I teach those, I say, we're going to, as your major project that takes 60% of your grade, we are going to continue what you already have to do with Word of Life, which is all the students have to take their Bibles and write down a one sentence or even phrase summary of each chapter of the Bible. And there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There are 939 in the old and 260 in the new. And they're supposed to write down a chapter title for everyone. I said, so we're going to use that. I said, I want you, number one, to read the passage, whatever book I'm reading. In fact, uh, in a couple weeks, I'm going to be up in Scroon Lake 
not wearing my short sleeves, and I'm going to be teaching Revelation for two weeks. And every one of those students are going to make a title for the passage summarizing that chapter in one sentence. You know what my one sentence for Matthew 24 is? How it all ends. That's just my title that I wrote for when I did that. Look through the scriptures. Then I say, note as many lessons and truths and doctrines as you can find in your own words. Look for the principles. Look for the lessons. Look for the truths. Look for uh, what you can, in your own words. You're not trying to get Warren Wearsby's words, you know, and, or, or whoever your favorite guru is. But you, what you see in that passage, and I'm going to show you that. I'm actually going to do all this in front of you. And I see you can use, if you have time, all the resources, you know, online, the Blue Letter Bible, or Logos, or MacArthur Study Bible, or the Ryrie Study Bible, or the Schofield Study Bible, or the, your favorite Bible teacher study Bible that they're all selling. It doesn't matter. Use a resource to get the background so that you begin to have this grasp of the Scriptures. You know, we're supposed to be lifelong experts on the Bible. I mean, not just that that we've read it, but I mean, we know where to turn, where to find stuff. I love getting on airplanes. In fact, Bonnie and I get on airplanes 10,000 miles a month. Do you know how long that is? I calculated how many months of my life I've spent in pressurized compartments. We fly 125,000 miles a year between all the places we teach. It's amazing. But you know what I love to do? Sit down in a, in a plane, pop out my Bible, and have the person sitting around me turn and look and say, what are you doing? You know, they actually talk in airplanes. And I say, oh, I'm, I'm studying the Bible. They say, what do you do? Well, I used to say, I'm an ordained Baptist minister. As soon as I do that, they go like this. <laughs> They're afraid of ordained Baptist ministers. I'm not sure why. And they just kind of turn and, you know, look out the window. But I say, hmm, I'm a Bible teacher. They go, you're a Bible. I go, yeah, I teach Actually, the first thing I say is I teach ancient literature. <laughs> and they, you know, I don't think they've ever sat by anybody before. And so they, they go, what ancient literature? And I say, I, I'm a Bible teacher. Nine out of ten people turn and look at me, and they go, I have a question about the Bible. Most people are curious about the Bible. Maybe they don't want, you know, the ordained Baptist minister to tell them what to do, but boy, are they curious about the Bible. Did you know you should become an expert on the Bible? You should know where to find that verse on anything and everything and show it to them. Turn your Bible around, show it to them. And if you have anything underlined, they're shocked. They... I have people, they'll go, you write in your Bible? I said, oh, when you get to be my age, you got to find it. you got to mark stuff so you don't lose it. Okay, so you, you note as many lessons and truths and doctrines as you can. But look at this. This is where most of us have a problem. When I read the Bible, I find all kinds of verses I should share with Bonnie. Or my kids. We have eight children. Boy, they need to hear that. Or if you're a student, your roommate, or whoever. We're always looking for verses that show them what they're lacking or what they need or they need to remember that. Do you know the purpose of the Bible, the first epistle, do you know what the first epistle of the New Testament is written by Jesus' earthly brother? What was his name? James. 
Do you know what he said the Bible is? A mirror. And what do you do with mirrors? Do you blind people with it? Is that what we're always doing with a mirror? We're shining the light to blind them? That's what a lot of people think of the Bible. It's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is for me to look in the mirror and see that I need to shave or I need to wash my face or I need to smile more or whatever I need. It's I'm looking in the mirror. And we all, looking in this mirror, we write a prayer from our Bible study where we ask the Lord to unleash one of the things, these lessons and principles and truths we've found, into changing me. You want to know how to revolutionize any relationship? Find someone and say, could I share with you what I've been finding in the Bible that God is using to transform my life? Everybody wants to hear about how bad you are and how much you need to change. They don't want you to talk about how bad they are and how much they need to change. And they get very uncomfortable, especially if the finger comes out and you say, you need to change here. But boy, people are wide open to you saying, this is what God convicted me about. And this is what I'm asking him to change in my life. You want to revolutionize your marriage? Husbands, study the Bible. Write your title, find the lessons, write out a prayer and say, God, change this. I want, it, I want my wife to think I'm more patient than I was last year. I want my wife to think that I'm more loving and selfless than I was last year. I want her to see growth and transformation in my life. And I, I want the closest person to me, the one that, that walks through life with me, to see that Christ is revolutionizing me on the inside. And then after you spend your first week studying, say, honey, can I share with you my applications and how God is at work in my life? You know what she'll do? After you resuscitate her with those paddles, you know, uh, the, whatever they call those things, uh, she'll go, wow, yes. And what are you doing? I'd like to do that too. <laughs> I want to change too. See, that's, that's what I'm telling the students. I said, you're going to, to whatever Bible Institute, Word of Life, or whichever one I'm teaching in. You're going there temporarily. And you're trying your hardest to pass and get through all this. But I would rather give you something that's going to change the rest of your life. Do you want to know how you can be effective? I was just teaching. Bonnie and I were in Thessalonica. Actually, it's called Saloniki over there. But we spent... I don't know, six weeks teaching in Greece. And it was wonderful. And we hip-hopped between, or beep-bopped, or whatever. We flew between all the cities. And I remember going to an apartment block. They all looked the same. They're just miles of them because it's a huge city, Thessalonica is. And, and I was talking to students. It was a field trip. And I said, look, do you see that apartment block? I said, some of you will live in one of these the rest of your life here in wherever you are, in Europe or Central Europe or Western Europe or wherever. And I said, do you want to know how you can transform that apartment block? Find one person in the apartment block and say, hey, I'm in this study where I'm reading the Bible and I'm learning how God is changing my life. Could I spend a few minutes every week telling you what God taught me out of the Bible and how he's changing me? You ask about five or ten people, you'll find one just like that. Because they're curious. The Bible is changing you? I'd love to. I said, and meet with them every week. And you know what? Your little group will grow. Okay, so that's what we're going to do, or we'll never get done. Uh, I'm glad that my slide number is over the time, 
Oh, it looks like I only have 32 minutes left. So, okay. So this is my journal. This, the, my small group that I went through this, this, this was our 42nd week together, and I was doing Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Dominus Flavit. We read Matthew 23 to 24. That was our chapter because actually the, you know, the chapter divisions were put in by Bishop Stephen Langton from the Church of England. Did you know that? He did in the 12th century. He's the one that divided the Bible into chapters. There were no chapters until... The Archbishop of Canterbury, no less, divided it into chapters, Langton. And he didn't do a good job. He did it on a horseback, and sometimes the horse went like that, and his pen marked through the manuscript, because that actually should be, you know, there are a lot of those where the first verse, the next chapter, chopped off, but it doesn't matter. So I started back there. And there's my title, where Jesus... Now, every time I do this, I get a new title for every chapter. So that time I wrote, Where Jesus Wept, as he watched the end of the world swirling around Jerusalem. And then I wrote my little summary. You know, I kind of, after spending the whole, you know, week studying that chapter, I wrote, when Jesus told his disciples about the end of the future, he built every word of it around one spot on earth in theological circles. That message, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, is called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet, on the Mount of Olives. Discourse. It's one of the longer sermons Christ taught. Uh, Sermon on the Mount was three chapters, Olivet Discourses, two, 24, 25, huge passage of scripture, vital for us to understand. Jesus framed his words about the rest of history of this planet, just looking at Jerusalem and all of its earthly glory spread in front of him in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. He says, keep your eye on Jerusalem. That's kind of what he was saying to the disciples when they were all alarmed about what was happening next. And then he said to them that in Acts 1, that he ascended from the Mount of Olives. And he said, the angel actually said, this same Jesus who you see going up to heaven will so come in like manner. Wow. Keep your eye on Jerusalem. That's where he ascended, and that's where he's returning to the Mount of Olives. So what I also show them is, because the most important thing about the Bible is understanding it, I said, use every tool. If you have a study Bible, this is in the back of your study Bible, okay? Do you see that chart? It's called a harmony of the Gospels. It takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see the four columns, and it puts them in chronological order so you can see kind of quadraphonically all the events. It's fascinating to see it. All the events in the Gospel, each of the Gospel writers primarily the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who talk about the same events. John, it's like he's in a different event. John doesn't hardly cover anything the others cover. It's like the students I see in school who are looking that way when I'm pointing this way, and I go, what, what are, class are you in? That's how John is, but he is magnificent what he does. You notice there's hardly anything. John doesn't even cover in that right-hand column any of this stuff about the sermon, uh, the Olivet Discourse. It, in fact, doesn't cover any of it. But look at the other three, what they do. It's Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his donkey, and, and that's Luke 19, see uh, there in the third column, where he wept, actually the Greek word is he wailed over the city. It was a horrible moment for the crowd. They were all saying Hosanna and throwing their clothes on the ground, and he's coming on his donkey, and he stops the donkey, and he just loudly wails kind of one of those sounds that makes you uncomfortable. Jesus is weeping with, with great emotion as he saw Jerusalem. That's how Palm Sunday, that's how the last week of Christ's ministry starts. This prophetic horror at what's coming. He could see Vespasian 
coming to, you know, the general that became the emperor, coming to quell the Jewish revolt. And then when, you know, Nero commits suicide, Vespasian, the greatest general of the day, goes back to Rome and becomes the emperor, and he leaves behind his son, Titus, the arch of Titus in Rome, to quell the Jewish rebellion. And Jesus saw all that. And he saw them build the seven-kilometer-long stockade around Jerusalem, cutting every tree for 15 miles in every direction down, and building a stockade where they basically starved them to death inside until people would throw themselves off the walls, the Jews, or else come and say, kill me, because they were so horrifically emaciated in, in agony, and they'd rather die quickly. And the Romans crucified 500 of them a day and used even more trees. That's why it's still barren around there. And now you can see. So Jesus saw that, wailed, and then on Tuesday, he's wailing again in, in, in chapter 23 of Matthew. You see that in that first column. And then he starts talking about the temple and the future and his second coming, and he spends all the rest of 24 and all of 25 giving these lessons. Do you see the lessons? Uh, avoid distractions or trends. I'm coming unexpectedly. Beware of wasting your life. Uh, serve others like you're serving Christ. Jesus applied the second coming in chapter 24 and 25. So last night as we saw, he introduced all this with the Lord's Prayer, the words of it, the petitions, your name hallowed, your kingdom come, your will done, supply, cleanse, protect, and your everything forever. And our seven greatest needs, he said, you need to focus on me every day. That's the purpose of prayer, the very first thing. Our Father, you're in heaven. You're still on the throne. You were there all night long while I was unconscious and sleeping and weak and unable to do anything. You started the day because God looks at days as the evening and the morning. God actually started today last night when you and I expired and went to sleep unconscious, and he started the day. We woke up this morning, whatever time you woke up, and he'd already started the day, and he wants us to check in with him on the throne and say, I want to focus on you. I want you to control my life. I surrender to you. I want to follow your will through life. I want to need you so much that I need you to supply my daily bread. That's why America, Christianity is faltering a bit, because we don't need daily bread? Are you kidding? We store up so we, we can calculate. We have enough. No matter if gas gets to 7 or $12 a gallon, I can make it because I've got enough. We don't need God. And he said, I want you to need me every day. I, I want you needing my help, cleansing you from sin, protecting you from the evil one, humbling ourselves, and neglecting any of those petitions. That's why the Lord said, after this manner, pray. So every day we're doing the same thing. We're focusing on him. We're seeking his control. We're following his will. We're asking him to supply us. What happens when we neglect that? Well, we become just like the churches he checked on in Revelation. We're going to see that later on in the week. Uh, Ephesus was distracted. Pergamus was self-centered. Thyatira was doing their own thing. Laodicea was self-sufficient. Remember he said, you are increased with goods and you don't need anything. What an awful place to get. That's why the church flourishes in those parts of the world where it's not comfortable and secure and convenient like it is in America. When I was a pastor, I was a pastor for, uh, let's see, from 1977 to 2017, for 40 years. Did you know when it rained, we knew the attendance was going to be down because people just don't want to come through the rain. And when it snowed, 
it was really down. I mean, uh, when the Super Bowl was on, I remember them, the elders saying, you're not going to have Sunday evening service in the Super Bowl? Are you kidding? No one will come. I said, do you think God wants to change the schedule of the gathering of his body for a football game? So we just kept on having him. But you know what? You understand what I mean. Uh, we need him, and we have to be together in cleansing. And, and the, the church in Sardis was defeated, and the Laodiceans were proud. Okay, so I wrote in my journal. The next thing, Jesus sorrowed as he described the end of the world. Christ's judgments come to those who are unwilling to come to him. And the chief characteristic of the end of the world is Jesus repeatedly said, beware of deception. And America is almost the prime floodgate of deception going into the world. We have more wackos on television and the internet and cable than anybody in the world. I mean, it's unbelievable. Most of the cults originated in America. I mean, the Jehovah's False Witnesses and all the Mormons and the Christian side, all of those are American. Isn't it, America? Isn't it amazing that Watch out for deception. And in his end of days map, Jesus explained to the disciples that God's wrath against sin and his love unfolds in Revelation. Revelation is the greatest revival the world has ever known. God says, and an angel attests, that the number of people getting saved out of the tribulation couldn't be counted. Remember that in chapter 7? He says it again in chapter 14. It's, John says, who, who are all these people? There was an innumerable multitude, and they're coming up out of this time of God's wrath against sin, but his love poured out for the world. By the way, we're on the spot where Jesus, uh, we're standing in Dominus Flavit, the spot where Jesus actually gave this uh, Olivet Discourse. And do you see between the two uh, olive tree limbs there, do you see the tallest building on the horizon there? Do you know what that is? That's Mount Zion. Do you ever think about the context? I'm, I have a phonographic mind. I have pictures in my mind, and I'm describing them to you. Okay, I'm a phonograph with these pictures. When Jesus was on the side of the Mount of Olives, he was looking out at Mount Zion. He was thinking about all that the scriptures say about Mount Zion. He thought about that was going to be the spot where the upper room was and is still remembered in the sight. And as he's looking at that spot, he's thinking, I'm going to pour out my spirit, and the church is going to go into all the world. And then these horrors that he described were going to come. Uh, another thing that I show the students is the, everything happens somewhere that's Bible geography. Well, that's geography, but Bible geography is everything in the Bible happens somewhere. Number one, that's where Herod buried his family. That's the Hinnom Valley, that deep spot there. This is Jerusalem. If you just slice Jerusalem you know, from east to west, that's what it would look like. So the Hinnom Valley, that's what we think of Gehenna and all that. Uh, the wise men came to Herod's palace. That's Mount Zion. Herod's palace was also on Mount Zion, not just the church of Dormition I showed you in the upper room. And then they filled in the valley, and, and Solomon started it, and Herod and, and everybody else really finished it, and they built a temple there. And then there's that other deep valley, the Kidron Valley, and then Jesus is over there and number four on the Mount of Olives doing all of this Olivet Discourse. And how he got there was, you remember, it's Tuesday, and he's already been in the temple. And they left the temple, and they walked up the side of the Mount of Olives, not over the top where Bethphage and Bethany are. They're on the backside toward the Dead Sea. You can't see them. But he only went up to the crest there. And he was up there at the end of that red line looking back 
as the Bible says, in Jerusalem and all of its glory and all those buildings. You know, this is what it looks like today. I'm standing in the eastern gate. Look at the, the Muslim graves are all there. They actually put those graves there because the Muslims read enough, you know, Islam comes out of the Byzantine Christendom, and Muhammad's wife, one of them, uh, actually was a Byzantine Christian, and she knew the Bible, and he knew the Bible. In fact, if you read Muhammad, he used to visit Byzantine church services. Byzantine, that's from the 4th century onward of the Roman Empire. And they knew enough about the Bible that they knew that the king was coming back, you know, in the Eastern Gate. They'd read Ezekiel 40 to 48. So they said, well, we're going to stop him from coming through the Eastern Gate. And they put hundreds of graves right in front of the Eastern Gate. Isn't that interesting? And so those are all those Islamic graves. And you're looking right at that building you see, the one with the colorful people on it. That's Gethsemane. Above it is the Russian Orthodox Gethsemane. And if you follow that line along, Dominus Flavit is kind of peeking out between those cedar trees near the top. And when you walk down the same road, this is the road, this is the Palm Sunday road. It's still the Palm, it's still the road Jesus walked on. They've just paved it in recent years. But when you walk down that, look, I'll let you see. We're walking down with our group. I'm holding my iPhone. See the Dome of the Rock? And on the right is where we're going in those trees. That's called Dominus Flavit. But on the way down, you go by this. This is the tomb of Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah. I mean, it's right on the Palm Sunday road. Can you imagine Jesus walking down that road, what it was like? And when you look to the left, it's the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, 150,000 graves. Those are only the ones that counted. They're on top of each other. It's the largest assemblage of Jewish people's burial place because they all want to be by where the king is coming back. And there's our group, and we're heading down the hill, and we turn in to this side. And I'm only going to let you have a clip of this, but listen to this for just one second. Let me look here. I still have 18 minutes. Okay. Boom. Let's see if it works. I want you to come on the trip, okay? We're on the Mount of Olives. said in verse 2, do you not see all these things, Matthew 24, 2? Assuredly, I say to you, what? What does it say in verse 2? Of all the buildings of the temple, Jesus said, not even one stone is going to still be mortared and sitting blocks, like cement blocks. He said, none of those big blocks are going to be left of the temple. And guess what? You'll find when we're on the other side, when we go through there, you're, you're going to sit on a pile of the stones from the temple that the Romans pried. They didn't just pry the whole temple and all the buildings. They started taking the courses of stones and they took them down until they were too big to move. Until they got to the... Yeah, and you got the idea. That's Matthew 24. In fact, we're going to be going through that for the next 18 minutes, so why don't you get in your Bibles, navigate to Matthew 24, and I'm going to actually walk you through, illustrate it, and then explain it, what's going on. What you see right here is the Lien Rittmeyer, who is an amazing Dutch uh, architect who is a Christian, who draws all the buildings that are in the, the New Testament that he can build, or that he can draw as an architect. And this is his model of the temple in Jesus' time. Do you see the red line? That's the part from the red line up is what the Romans destroyed 
in AD 70. And what they did is they, they, they pushed it over. Actually, Jesus says, see in Matthew 24, uh, starting in, in verse uh, 2, Jesus said, do you not see all these things? All that, you can see it right there before it fell down. Assuredly, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. There is nothing from that red line up, nothing that Herod built that's left. The Romans systematically pried, pushed, and threw down. Do you see the kind of like red you know, circle? That's the pile of rubble you just saw on that clip. Here's another view of it. Uh, they, the Jewish archaeologists have left it. You're looking at what is an extension of the Western Wailing Wall. Do you see the big pile of stones? They removed the ones in front of us, and look at how it made the one-foot-thick paving stones go down. They, they violently destroyed the temple. Here's a close-up of what that pile of rocks looks like. In fact, I take people there, and I say, hey, go and stand by that rock pile. Put your hand on it. It's the most visible, fulfilled prophecy in the world. Jesus said, right there in verse 2, not one stone will be left. And he made such an impression in verse 3, they all said, when is this going to happen? What's next? You know, how will it all end? And I say, 40 years later, that's what we see today. The Romans came 40 years later and exactly fulfilled what Jesus said, even to the point of throwing down. And now today, I mean, this is, this is from Dominus Flevit, the place where Jesus gave Matthew 24. And look what the focal point is. Do you all, in that picture, what would you describe as the focal point? The gold dome. Yeah, what is that? That is a monument to Islam's triumph over Christianity. That's why it's there. They always build their monuments to show that they overcame Christianity. That's why this one's there. Do you know what the one to the left, it's called El-Aqsa? It's over the spot where the church was born. They, the idea of Islam is that they are conquering. In fact, a thought for you to have is that the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, today is 80% Islamic. Did you ever think of that? Most of the Roman Empire was northern Africa, Roman Asia is Turkey and the Middle East and wrapping around. And in 20 to 30 years, most of Western Europe is going to be majority Islamic. Everybody knows that. They're having children at three and four and five times the average European birth rate, which is like 1.2 or 0.8. Europe isn't even sustainable in their birth rate. And the Islamic people through the Arab Spring have come and they've, the Muslims have filled Europe and they're having children so fast that soon everything that was the Roman Empire is going to be Islamic. Very interesting. Okay, then last night we concluded with Paul's three-part outline of the Bible, that the Bible is about Jesus as creator. Uh, that's the first two chapters. The bulk of the Bible is about Jesus the Redeemer, promised in Genesis 3, and then revealed fully as the lamb that was slain, massacred in Revelation 5. And what Jesus said is, I'm coming back as judge. And he explains that right here. And let's start going through it. Uh, look at Matthew 24, and we're going to start our little Bible study. These are my, and I tell the students, I say, these are my observations. And I want you to find your own observations. You can agree with mine, and if you don't see that, you find your own. Number one, Jesus explains that Satan's many deceptions are going to be growing. And this is where it is, Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many are going to come in my name, 
So just because someone says they're representing Christ, you back up and you become an Acts 17 what? Verse 11, Berean. When Paul taught the Bible in Berea, I'll never forget, Bonnie and I were standing in Berea. I was teaching a class on the site of the synagogue in Berea when six boys from the local Greek uh, middle school came over with their soccer ball. And Bonnie didn't want them to interrupt our class, and so she went over and talked to them, and I'll never forget. They were so curious. They said, why is this American here? What is he doing? Why, why are they filming this? And, and she began sharing the gospel with all these Greek Orthodox young people. It was, it was I watched, and boy, they all knew English. And, and she even told them at the end, it was really sweet. She says, oh, she said, and this class you can watch on YouTube. Instantly, all six of them pulled out their phones, and they're on YouTube, and they say, where? And she told them, and they all turned it around and we're watching one of the videos of our classes. That's how connected our world is. Watch out. Not everybody on the internet that says they're from Christ is. Do what the Bereans did, as I was teaching on that day. When Paul taught the Bible, the Bereans took out their Bibles and checked him against the what? Scriptures. See, everybody back then was an expert in the Bible. And even Paul, they said, I'm going to check if that agrees and is congruent and agreeing with the prophets and with the historical books and with all of the scriptures. See, we need to be like those simple first century connected to the word people were because deception's coming. Look at verse 11, same thing. Then false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Uh, look at verse 23. And if anyone says to you, look, here's Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christ, verse 24, and prophets will rise and will show great signs and wonders. Remember, the ultimate deceiver is a false prophet. Did you know there's going to be a man walking on earth in front of the Antichrist? And he says, believe the Antichrist. He's the real deal. Watch. And this false prophet can call down fire from heaven on television because the whole world is going to be watching. So they're all on their digital devices or whatever. They're seeing it, and he is calling down fire from heaven. Wow, he can give life to an image and make it come alive. That's what it says. And, and he, well, look what Jesus says. He shows great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. By the way, that interesting word that causes so much controversy, election, that's the first time it shows up in the New Testament. Did you know that? Three times in this book alone. I mean, in this chapter alone is the word election. But uh, it would deceive the elect, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, verse 26, therefore, if anybody says to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. For his lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So number one, Satan's many deceptions will grow. And you can see uh, Jesus really emphasized that. Guess what? That's exactly the first two verses of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6. It talks about the white horse and the Antichrist coming. Secondly, earth's disasters will grow. Look at verse 6. 
You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for these are things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, verse 7, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Wait a minute. Earthquakes in various places? Do you realize that news traveled at the speed of horse back then, or the speed of chariot, or the speed of wind pushing sailboats? As I said last night, there were Roman emperors that died and they didn't even know it in the empire for six months or more. That's how slow. But Jesus said there's coming a time when earth's disasters are going to grow. In fact, they grow at such a, a, a frequency and, and intensity level and, and visibility that Luke 21 says that people are going to start having, the Greek word is apsuko. Apo suko. Suke is your spirit. Apo is out. Spirit out. They're going to die of fear. That's what Jesus said. When they see, look what it is in, in verse, uh, uh, let's see, beginning of sorrows, they will deliver, I mean, uh, nation, verse 7, will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. When they see the pestilence, COVID, when they see the famine, what just happened in the Ukraine, one-fourth of the wheat harvest that the world depends on, there are going to be riots in Egypt because of the Ukrainian war. They live, Egyptians live on Ukrainian wheat. And they're not going to get it. And they're poor. That's one of the poorest Arab countries in the world. Okay, what time is it? Oh, I have seven minutes. Okay, thanks, Rich. Um, number three, Jesus says not only are deceptions going to grow and disasters are going to grow in his outline of the end of the world, but persecutions of saints will grow. Look at verse 9. But they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Oh, we're so insulated in America. I mean, we can protest and watch Fox News and say, we're, we're you know, Texas is standing against whatever, you know. We're in a little bubble. Uh, the, I'm thankful we're surrounded by Christians that are like control rods that's holding back the devil and his plan uh, temporarily. But you know what? God is going to allow Satan to permeate this world. And it's going to be at the end, and thankfully I personally believe, and I hope you do too, what Jesus taught in chapter 3 of Revelation. He says that the wrath to come, the tribulation, in Revelation 3 is for the earth dwellers. Amen. Earth dwellers is used 11 times in the book of Revelation exclusively for lost people. So Jesus said that the tribulation is only for lost people. And so that's why he told that church, the Philadelphians, that they were going to be kept from the hour. And the hour is the way he talks about the tribulation. So I'm thankful that the persecution of saints, that's the ultimate one, when demons are tormenting people and when a demon army, army kills one-third of the population of earth, I'm thankful we will not be there burying our friends, okay? But guess what? It gets so bad before that that people in 1 Peter thought they were in the tribulation and people in 2 Thessalonians thought they were in the tribulation because the intense persecution that precedes the tribulation is worse than anything we've ever experienced. And it's coming. It's coming. It's the, if, if the whole world can turn against Putin in two days, 
Can you imagine how fast the whole world can turn against us? Just get one clip of some zany Christian, you know, someone shooting an abortion doctor in front of someone's TikTok video and say, we're, doing, we're shooting and killing him because he's a baby murderer in the name of Jesus Christ. You get that on a TikTok video, and there will be an instantaneous global revulsion. You understand? Now, I know that's hard to say because abortion is murder. But Jesus said, you don't murder the murderers. You let me do it, okay? Vengeance is what? Yeah. And so, see, we have to be very careful that we don't unduly cause some of the persecution. We should just be persecuted because they don't like Christ. So Jesus says a persecution, by the way, that's exactly what Revelation 6 to 19 is about, hunting down Christians they're going to be Christians on earth because as soon as they get saved, they're going to be killed. That's why they're robed in white and have palm branches and are before the throne. Number four, Jesus said the darkness of evil will grow. Look at verse 12. And lawlessness, chapter 24, verse 12, will abound. The love of many will grow cold. We're seeing that already. Do you know, as a pastor, I used to, on Sunday morning, try and, and get people's attention on God, but they had all been at the movie theaters on Saturday night watching Dolby surround signs 60 feet wide and 30 feet high screens, watching witchcraft and watching science fiction and watching basic evil, and some of them even were watching nudity and, and even beyond that because, you know, it's in all the movies. And they came and they were totally as cold and grieving of the Holy Spirit and distant from God as possible, and then I came to try and teach them on Sunday morning the Bible. Do you see what the Bible says? Because iniquity abounds, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness, iniquity, sin, the largest purveyor of sin, iniquity, evil. 80% of pornography comes through pocket phones. Our world is pickled in sin and and growing i mean i mean the kids that are that have parents are pacifying children with ipads when they're born and handing them iphones so they won't talk at the restaurant so they can talk with their friends do you think they're ever going to be off of this they're absolutely addicted to the the dopamine rush that comes from looking at at games and and Candy Crush and TikTok videos and whatever the newest thing is going to be because their minds are rewired. And most of it, the God of this world, is filling with evil. And that's why it says, the love of many will grow cold, verse 12, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And look at the good news, this gospel of the kingdom. Let's get there before we go. Let me see. I have... Uh, one minute. Jesus explains that even in these dangerous times, the spread of the gospel will grow. That's verse 14. See it? And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Revelation 7. God deploys the 144,000 Jews. If you know anything about Israel right now, one million Jews left Russia and came to Israel in the 80s. You all remember that? You're all old enough to remember that. Did you know now that the entire military, the entire political establishment, uh, they are predominantly Russian Jews. Predominantly. All the people you read about in the news, they, either they, if they're old, came, or their parents came in the 80s from Russia. 
But what's happened is those Russian Jews are not mostly Orthodox. They're just Jews. They're ethnic Jews. And so ministries have had the most amazing inroads in. Uh, Bonnie and I have been, you go up to, to Nazareth, there's a seminary teaching Israelis how to church plant. You go down into Beersheba in that area, there are Jewish Christians standing Kind of like Americans do protesting stuff, they're standing with gospel placards by the road and in the news in Israel. The Israeli news is showing pictures of Jewish messianic Christians with cards they're holding about Jesus Christ and, and pleading with their brothers and sisters to come to Christ. There are more churches being planted today in Israel than you would, I don't think they've been like that since the Apostle Paul was heading up the movement, okay? It's unbelievable what's going on. And because of that, in Revelation 7, there's going to be these literal Jewish converts to Christ who are the 144,000. It could be some of them are alive right now. Maybe they're holding placards in Beersheba, you know. Then in chapter 11, we have the two witnesses show up. You know, probably Moses and Elijah, but the Lord doesn't tell us, so it doesn't matter. We don't speculate. Chapter 14, we're back to the 144,000, and they're having this countless multitude in front of them that have come. It says that they go to everywhere in the world, and they personally talk face to face, and the beasts cannot kill them. They're invulnerable. They are able to speak every language. They are what was prophesied, that they are going to have the Spirit of God on them. They're going to speak to not only the nation of Israel, but the world. And then look what happens in chapter 15. The unbelievable spread of the gospel that ends in chapter 16 where the gospel angel comes. Do you realize that when God is hurling down 100-pound hailstones and squashing everybody and killing, and the demon army is killing anybody that the hailstones don't get, that God sends an angel in chapter 16 who is with a loud voice sharing the plan of salvation to every human on earth. He's low enough to be heard and it's kind of like the gospel blimp, and he speaks. And God says the spread of the gospel is going to grow till it crescendos in the tribulation. I mean, we're a part of it, and I'm thankful for Word of Life and Wycliffe and everybody that's just spreading the gospel. But wait till God takes over and sends his army and more get saved. And then Jesus explains that Satan's plan to visibly rule in the world through the Antichrist grows, and that's verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the Antichrist, spoken by Daniel. Did you know that Daniel was Jesus' favorite prophetic prophet? It's the only one he names by name. And he says, just like Daniel said, so Jesus verified everything Daniel said. And boy, Daniel gives us the map and said there are only going to be four empires. And you all know that because you've studied Daniel and labeled every chapter right and found every application, so you know all that. I'm treating you like students, you know. But keep going. Standing in the holy place, that's the, the holy place. That means Jesus saw a temple in Jerusalem, a real Jewish temple that's offering sacrifices in Jerusalem that the Antichrist enters. So you know what that means? Jesus was a dispensationalist. I think he invented it. Did you ever think about that? He believed there's a difference between Israel and the church, and he believed there's a future for Israel, that they're really going to have a temple, and it's really going to be in Jerusalem, they're really going to reinstitute sacrifices, and the Antichrist is going to cut them off and stop them from doing it. And that's what he says here. Verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And on and on it goes. One last one, and then we can go. Jesus explains that God the Son will return and end the rule of sin that's Matthew 24, 27 to 31. That's what you see in Revelation 19 to 22. And basically, everything Jesus said, false Christ, that's what 
Revelation 6 says the white horse, war, that's the red horse, famine, Matthew 24, 7 is the black horse, death is the pale horse, the martyrdom of saints, that's the fifth seal, and then all those horrible signs that, that Jesus chronicles in Luke 21, that's basically the seal. Remember I told you you walked by Zechariah's tomb? Remember what Zechariah said? When Jesus touches on the red Mount of Olives there, there is an earthquake fault line. The oil, the petroleum geologist, I got this from a friend of mine who's a petroleum geologist. He said, oh, it's in our map. We know right where the fault lines are because we've had to do geological surveys of Israel looking for oil. And he said, it's curious that there is an exact east-west fault line right through the Mount of Olives. And I said, mm-hmm, Zechariah, I knew that before you had you know, the soundings that you found that because... I know that it splits and moves to the north and south so that the water from under the throne goes to the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And all that's going to happen right there. And what Jesus said, and this is where we're going to go tomorrow, when you see all these things, verse 33, the verse 8, birth pains, when you see all those things happening at once, all of them, know that, they're, that I'm coming back. And what are those all of them? Oh, you're going to see global diseases getting more lethal. Didn't we just go through that? Global warming, it's going to get hotter. Did you know the western United States is on the 1,000-year drought? I mean, they look in tree rings. There was a drought like we're facing right now 1,000 years ago. It's in the bristlecone pines. They can see the tiny rings. that The trees didn't even grow for hundreds of years because they didn't get enough water. It's coming back to the West, but the Indians survived it because, you know, they were only just small groups. But when you have millions of people sitting in the middle of the desert, living on the Colorado River that's shrinking faster, that Lake Mead is almost gone, they're going to stop hydroelectric production on Lake Mead because it's too low. Jesus said there's going to be global water shortages, food scarcity, Read the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. They're scared to death of the rippling effect of the Ukrainian war. I mean, have you looked at corn prices? Have you looked at wheat prices? Wheat prices have, have gone up so fast. You, you made more than Google or Apple if you would have got wheat futures, okay? Global conflicts, they're going to be bigger and deadlier. The global hatred for Christ and us who follow him is going to get more severe. And... You know, it says that the Antichrist keeps people from buying and selling. We are so surrounded by global facial recognition. Did you know our home, where we live a month a year, if someone walks up to the garage, Bonnie gets a notice on her phone from Nest that says, stranger at door, or it says daughter at door, or husband at door. That doorbell is watching and it knows everybody's faces. It has a, my doorbell has a log of everybody that's come up there, and it compares and tells me who's coming. And it costs $79. Can you imagine what the people that want to control the world have? Their facial recognition, and it's just going to get more complete. And that takes us to, we have to stop. This is tomorrow. I'll just start it. I'm late, Rich. Will you forgive me? From the temple behind me, the Dome of the Rock area there, he brought them up here on Tuesday and delivered what is called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet. And I won't show you that till tomorrow. What are we supposed to do about it? how it all ends? Are we supposed to say, are you bringing in the kingdom now, Lord? What, what's going next? Is it Putin or what? He says, no. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my what? 
And that's what he left us to do. Let's bow. Father, I pray that we would be emboldened to cry out to you to say, fill me again. Fill me fuller than I've ever been before. I want to love you more than I've ever loved you in my life. I want to serve you like this is my last day. I want to be that good and faithful servant that you find doing what you left me to do as we see the trends, the birth pains ramping up. Now, you might not come for another hour or another week or another month or another year or another decade. It doesn't matter. No matter how bad it gets, I know why we're here. I know what you called us to do. And we want to obey you. In the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said,